Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 98 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Tuesday morning, October 30th. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Bobby, the votes are in. The election election is over. They've had the election, and the results are... The the people have spoken. What did the people tell us? The people have told us that today's episode is not, in fact, going to be part three of our deep dive on FISA. Surfacing. Surfacing. (laughs) Surfacing quickly. We we are returning to the surface because there are bright, shiny objects everywhere. We uh, we need to surface to take a... Surface the ship. Surface the ship, I. Surface the ship. Con sonar. Uh, crazy Ivan. We are going to go to the surface. Which way is he turning? To We're the gonna... starboard. Okay. <laughs> if anyone is still listening. Yeah, we lost him already. We have decided that there actually have been enough events. Well, we, really we, didn't, need to... we didn't decide. The, the people true. decided. The people decided there's been enough stuff going on that we need to re-engage with the news in the world of national security law. Um, and indeed, the vote was actually pretty overwhelming. Um, of the 302 people who have voted in our Twitter poll so far, um, 72% opted for News in 98 and FISA in 99, 17% FISA in 98, News in 99, and 11% responded, what is the National Security Law Podcast? Uh, you can't blame that 11%. Nope. Uh, they are the, that's where the smart money in the market is. So we are in the midst of a deep dive series on the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. We've done uh, two out of three total episodes, most likely three total episodes. But if you want that third episode, you're going to have to wait till next week because right now we've got some craziness to did deal it, with. Did it, did it, did it, did it, did it. Breaking but news. Most dramatically, most dramatically. The World Series? Definitely not very dramatic. No. <laughs> no. Uh, most dramatically, the uh, apparent resolution of Doe v. Mattis. Doe vs. Mattis is done. Contributing member has has retired. We really, it's like we need to, we need to retire Doe v. Mattis' number. Poor Doe is dead. Uh, that reminds me. <laughs> what is that? Uh, poor Judd is dead from Oklahoma. Oh gosh. Um, That's the right. the um, although he's actually very much alive. Um, the ninety eight thing actually, by the way, got me thinking. Do you know where the the ninety eight gold rush was? The gold rush of ninety eight was that in Oklahoma? <laughs> actually, it was in uh, the Yukon. It was in Alaska and Canada. Okay. So in um, this is just random trivia of the day, right? Alaska state highways. Um, there are only, I think, 12 or 13 of them, and they're numbered in sequential order, 1 through, I think, 11 or 12, and then 98. Oh, really? And Alaska Highway 98 is actually the main street of Skagway, Alaska, because that was, like, where the heart of the 98 gold rush was. <laughs> How do you know this? I've been there. Okay. I've been the, I've been on you Highway 98. I was I was prospecting for, <laughs> you know, um, tchotchkes. Oh, that's awesome. Right. That's pretty cool. So listen, we have. Hey, uh, if we have any Alaska listeners out there, hit us up. Seriously, we'll know you're out there. That's cool. Alaska. I Alaska is one of my favorite places I've ever been. You're, you're um, now you're currying favor with our Alaska audience. Well, you know, I, happy to go back. The, there is a law school in Alaska. Okay. Are you are you are you trolling for a live live podcast? Prospects? Um, you know, it could speaking happen. of which, uh, so I don't actually have the numbers at hand as to the RSVP so far, but I think the Eventbrite is still up, and we are broadcasting live for episode one hundred on Wednesday, November fourteenth, from twelve fifteen to one forty five at American University Washington College of Law, Yuma Hall, room 401, Steve, is that right? Yep. 401? 4100 Yuma Street Northwest. By the way, I was kidding about the Alaska Law School. That was a scam oh. a couple years ago. Oh, there's no, there's there's no, no Alaska, Alaska Law School. Is that right? Yeah. That's outrageous. Let's start one. <laughs> you and I, founding faculty. What kind of degree, what kind of studies can we do here? National security law. I mean, it's close to Russia. You can, you can, I, I was told <laughs> once that that was the case. 
goodness. So, so um, we're you know the event brights up. We hope people will RSVP. Bobby has without any planning promised that we'll feed people at the at the live recording of the podcast. So I guess that's going to happen. We'll see uh, if anyone shows. Yeah, <laughs> we're gonna have a lot of pizza. I think there are at least two people coming. Are there? Yeah. Okay. Good. I Beck, don't know. Beck, Beck Hamilton and Jen Daskal. Okay, well, Jen's gonna be up on stage with us. She has that to. counts, man. You count that the people. You, you count the players when you're counting the attendance. Do they? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I was once at a Marlins game where the the attendance actually materially differed based on whether you counted the teams or not. Yeah, oh, I, I don't doubt that. I mean, it was like major league esque. Indeed. All okay. right. So that's coming up on November fourteenth, um, Wednesday, twelve fifteen to one forty five. We hope to see at least some of you guys there. Um, we also, Bobby, are in the, the final stages of T-Shirt Palooza. Yes, uh, you've got to get it done before Halloween is uh, close of business, I guess, on Halloween. So far, 200, 213 shirts sold, more than $3,000 raised, which is awesome. I'm so pleased about that. Um, and not much more to say other than get on that custom ink national security Makes for a good costume. It does make for a good costume. You could it's, dress up like a, a, a National Security Law podcast listener. <laughs> You've given me an idea for uh, frivolity there you for go. today. Okay, All between right. now and then, what should we talk so about? So we've got Dover vs. Mattis. Um, we also want to talk about a couple of the bright, shiny objects that have been going on. We want to talk about the president's apparent proposal to terminate birthright citizenship by executive order and why this is really stupid. Um, we want to talk about the stuff that came out yesterday about President Trump sending, I think it's 5,200 troops mm-hmm. to the southern border and how that interacts with posse comitatus and Bobby suspending habeas corpus. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, no, so your, your phrase. Bright, shiny objects. So in, in case you're not following bright, shiny object, we were remarking bef- just before we hit record that uh, it is a shame that the information environment and the media environment is such that if the president just throws something out there in what is transparently an attempt to, you know, put particular issues on the front of people's minds rolling into the midterm election, uh, including making claims about things that would be patently unconstitutional and absolutely are not going to happen. And if they were to happen, they'd be clearly struck down. But nonetheless, they excite the base, they piss off the critics and they mobilize the media. They mobilize the media, the, the ability of the president to marshal the media yep. and, to, and to call the tune. And so his call, the commander in chief's call the tune power so, is really unbelievable. So I'm naming some names when we get to the segment because I'm pissed at how a couple of media organizations that should know better Ooh. have covered this. And I should say, you know, that this is getting sort of wall-to-wall coverage. And Doe versus Mattis is not, is actually a pretty powerful reflection of what is wrong with how we are discussing, you know, legal issues in today's in today's discourse and climate. And yet here we are, we ourselves, we're well, going to talk about it. But that's because, But after Doe versus Mattis. Well, first, first of all, pride of place goes to our sustaining member. Thank that's, you. Guys, that's one of the benefits of membership in this program. You sustaining members, if and when you're transferred Priority to Bahrain. access. If your passport is canceled, we will talk about your case first. <laughs> uh, and then I think it actually is consistent with being critical of the media for covering. The reason we have to talk about suspending habeas, about birthright citizenship, and posse comitatus, is because the media is shining a bright spotlight on this because and the getting it wrong and, and well some of them certainly yes. not everybody but but certainly the some New York were. Times said it is uncertain if the president had oh, the power I unilaterally know. to terminate birthright citizenship and my yeah. response is no All it's right. not right. it's, it's as uncertain as if the sun is going to come up tomorrow I agree that there's been a lot of like well I don't know like there's a dispute about this yeah. it's kind of reasonable the two sides the people disagree alright um, and then on, on a more serious note I think if we have time we might say a little bit about the far less spunky 
and far more tragic news over the past week? Absolutely. We, you know, we said in our last piece we weren't going to dig into domestic terrorism, uh, despite ongoing events or unfolding events at that time, because we felt like we, you know, talked about that a lot before, and there weren't actually that many interesting legal issues. Um, but the extent of, of political and, and racist and anti-Semitic violence and these things that are happening in the larger climate that, that whispers sweet nothings to it, um, we think nonetheless requires some engagement. So we're going to engage on that a little and, bit. And, and at the risk of, of, of wearing my, my, my Judaism on my sleeve, I mean, the, you know, I, I am, no one would confuse me for the most devout, observant Jew. Um, but man, when stuff happens like what happened on Saturday, oh, yeah. it, it really brings out my my inflamed sense of of, of Jewish persecution. Um, well, as as it should. I mean, that, look, it's 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 very horrifying. Um, but but also, but also, but also, yeah. I mean, the thing about Saturday is I got the alert about the shooting, which took place at a bris. Yeah. While I was walking into Temple for Sydney's naming ceremony for oh, the same freaking thing in the same, you know, purportedly safe religious space. And the president says, you know what? It's their fault because they didn't have an armed guard. Neat. At which point I say, go to hell. I like it. That, that that may have to be the, well, I guess we can't really make we that title. We can't really make that title. <laughs> the Apple podcast might get mad at us. Uh, we'll test the boundaries there. All right. Anyway, but so, so let's start with the thing that we actually know the most about and that is getting the least amount of relative coverage, which is the denouement of Doe versus Mattis. I mean, I wish we had theme music to go with this. It's <laughs> been with us since September of 2017. Uh, I remember we were at a conference uh, that you'd organized on the role of courts in national security. And I remember very well getting the news alert and interrupting the panel discussion to say, hey, by the way, a U.S. citizen is in military custody. And we've been tracking this case ever since. And I think part of what's fascinating about it is that it has along the way managed to raise and resolve a whole bunch of fascinating issues. But hasn't been able to say anything on the merits of the thing that made it most important initially, which is, uh, at first, does uh, does anyone associated with the Islamic State, is the Islamic State within the scope of the 2001 and 2002 AUMFs? Authorizations for the use of military force. And, and then further, even if the answer to that is yes, uh, is a citizen in this particular circumstance subject to military detention uh, a la Hamdi, the uh, 2004 Supreme Court Hamdi decision. And I think you and I agree that the, the, the perhaps the most interesting procedural question alongside those two substantive questions is how long, right, can the government hold someone in such custody before providing them with access to counsel and or access to the courts? Um, and we didn't get, you know, we have sort of factual answers to that question from this case, but no, no formal answer. So let's let's I think and then there's other issues yep. about you know tra- the government tried to transfer him to his other country of right. citizenship and, to, and was stopped by the courts from doing right. so incredibly. So wh- why don't you start by summarizing for the listeners exactly what the denouement was and then we can talk about Good. the sort of the broader implications. All right. So he's free now. He's free in Bahrain. He's been sent to Bahrain. This is all as anyone who listens to this show knows all too well. It's been negotiated since summertime. Uh, we have been speculating all along what exactly could be holding up whatever deal is in the works. And at one point, we speculated that there might be something going on relating to his citizenship. I've been arguing almost the entire time this this whole drama has been playing out that it's it stands to reason that a Justice Department, the Sessions Justice Department, which is if nothing else, very focused on questions of citizenship and entry into the country, um, would be on the lookout to resist any scenario in which 
uh, John Doe would end up back in the United States. Even though he's a citizen, uh, if there was some way, either because of his Saudi citizenship or by dint of the leverage you get from the negotiations going on while he's in military custody, maybe they were holding out trying to get him to waive his citizenship the way that Yasser Hamdi, the most analogous prior case, uh, American citizen captured with the Taliban in Afghanistan back in the post-9-11 period early on, uh, when he ultimately cut a deal to, to leave uh, U.S. military custody and was sent back to his homeland, he waived his citizenship. And I was imagining that they were trying to press, perhaps, uh, for that exact same result here. By the way, I keep saying John Doe. We now know. His name! His name is Abdulrahman Ahmed al-Sheikh. So John Doe is al-Sheikh. And, uh, and he did not waive his citizenship, but he, so he kept his citizenship, but the government canceled his passport. And the way the, uh, so this is all in a scoop uh, by the New York Times. And the way the article reports it, it's sort of, it's packaged like that was the deal, right? We're going to cancel your passport, but you're not waiving your citizenship. And so obviously this this case concludes with one final fun and interesting issue. Uh, what's the legal constitutional significance of saying you've canceled a citizen's passport while he's outside the country? Well, let's say tomorrow he decides he's ready to get on a plane. He uh, he does some sort of you know fundraising effort, gets money for a ticket, wants to come back to the United States. Actually, Steve, let's start there with this question. Uh, he, he he needs a passport to come back, or can he just present at the border? Or in any event, if he decides, well, I'm going to sue first. Well, so so this is the interesting. I mean, I don't. How do you get on a plane? Without a passport, right? Mm. So, so I think there's the there's the legal issues, but then the, the practical. And he issues. can't get a visa to go somewhere else, likely if he doesn't have his passport. Right. So, so the question, I think the he'd have to he presumably he'd have to walk into like a a consular office in Bahrain or the embassy, mm-hmm. apply for a passport, so he and can they travel. Say like, not only do we cancel your passport, we're not going to issue a new one. So then he sues the State Department, right, for his passport, and then the question will be whether the government was. Uh, justify whether well, the government had the authority to deny him his pass, to cancel his passport and not provide a new one. Yeah, and I just, we talked about this on a prior episode, and we drew on the work of our buddy Jeff Kahn at mm-hmm. SMU, who is the leading authority on these questions about the right to travel and your constitutional right uh, in relation to passports, where there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of case law that is more mixed when it comes to the ability of the government to keep you from leaving the United States to go elsewhere, in right. particular, to go to a place like, say, North Korea or Cuba at a time when there's an embargo, right? And there, the government's interest in powers are at its maximum, and in terms of the, you know, the foreign affairs interest, and the individual's interest to travel um, are, relatively speaking, quite weak mm-hmm. relative to what you might ask compared to being outside the United States right. and being barred from reentry, even though you're a citizen. On the flip side though, right? I mean, I could easily see the government's response being whatever right he had to return to the United States, he waived. And so then the question I think would, you know, by, by, by agreeing to this deal. And then the question would be the very question that arose in Hamdi that was never litigated, right? I've, I've argued really since 2005 when it happened that the coer- that the expatriation agreement um, in the Hamdi release deal was actually unconstitutional because it was coercive. Well, but it, by that logic, wouldn't all plea agreements potentially, I mean, all run-of-the-mill plea agreements also be so coercive that they too would be unconstitutional? Or is citizenship, citizenship waiver is different? Citizenship waivers are different because of ju- like the voluntariness that the Supreme Court requires for, a wa- for expatriation is so much higher and more comprehensive than the voluntariness that it requires in ordinary criminal waiver contexts. And I just, I have a hard time, that distinction I think exists in the case law. And I have a hard time 
seeing why it wouldn't also apply in this context. Of course, this all presupposes that Al Sheikh would actually want to do this. Right. And so, I'll, and there's a re- and yesterday at Lawfare, I speculated there's a reason they may not want to. And there's a reason why this may really be a true deal. And the reason is this uh, if he does sue, so you get Al Sheikh versus Department of State or, you know, something like that. Al Sheikh versus Pompeo. Versus Pompeo. Right. So if Al, that would be, be crazy if that actually is what happens. So let's say he wins and then somebody sent him some money and he gets on a plane. Right. He arrives at, oh, let's say O'Hare, Shades of Padilla, right? Oh, God. So he rides, he rides at O'Hare, uh, and he's arrested and charged with material support because I've argued all along, if you go back and look at the FBI affidavit that was attached to the government's return to the original habeas petition in John Doe's name, um, there's a ton of content in there describing in very express ways all the social media activity that Al Sheikh engaged in before he left uh, Louisiana, where he had come back to the United States, and went over to Syria all of which looks a whole lot like he was not just a freelance journalist, but in fact somebody who was supportive of the Islamic State project and indeed was going there to join the Islamic State. Now, he may have a, he may have a good counterargument to that. Maybe it would turn out that somehow that FBI uh, declaration wasn't actually, I, I don't buy this for a second, but maybe it would turn out that it wasn't accurately capturing the social media. But assuming that it's true, you've got a pretty good 2339B material support prosecution available here. And if you're thinking, hey, that can't be true, otherwise they would have brought him back and prosecuted him, I would say you weren't listening earlier when I said that the Sessions Justice Department doesn't want this guy back in the country if they can avoid it. So I think that the the deal that's in place here is the government wants him out of the United States, that they could prosecute him if he shows up back here. Uh, he didn't want to waive his citizenship, but he accepted the passport cancellation. And I don't, you know, maybe he'll litigate it, maybe he won't, but I don't think that guy's ever setting foot in the United States because he faces real prospects of going to jail if he does that. I think that's right. Okay, so so that's the deal. Um, let's talk implications, right? I mean, I think my reaction to the story when it broke yesterday, besides it's way too early in the morning to deal with this stuff. <laughs> um, and that happened today with the citizenship stuff too. Like I'm literally... Dropping you know, off kids. I'm, no, before I'm waking up to like text messages. Like, wait, you, know, you sleep? I did not think you slept. <sighs> I don't like to talk about it. Um, <laughs> so, so my reaction was, um, duh, right? This is exactly what I could have predicted, but that it actually ends up a pretty good deal for Al Sheikh, like a better deal than maybe I would have thought he was going to get, given how vigorously the government litigated this case, at least at the beginning of this whole affair. Yeah, there are not a lot of people who are foreign fighters who ended up with the Islamic State in Syria, who end up in SDF custody, who end up in U.S. military custody, and who then end up just free in a comparatively uh, mm-hmm. comparative garden spot like Bahrain. This is a pretty good deal for him. So, so that leads me to wonder sort of two things, right? One of which I think you'll agree with and one of which you might not. So thing one is this just wasn't a priority for Wait, the Trump administration. Are you saying that we got thing one and thing two? Indeed. Okay. Um, so, 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 so point one um, is that, you know, this just wasn't – the priority for the Trump administration was to get this guy off the books while doing the least yeah. damage. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, he never showed up in the Trumposphere, which is, I guess, never. my way of saying like Trump himself seems to not be aware of it or, or, or hasn't engaged publicly on was, it 
never on the White House's radar. Like we never yeah. heard anything from anyone in the White House about this case. Um, we never heard anything from you know publicly from Attorney General Ashcroft, uh, Ashcroft from yeah. Attorney General Sessions about this case. The only the <laughs> only uh, the only Freudian slip. The only official I think we ever heard anything from was Mattis, and that was because he was specifically asked about it at press conferences. And his response was, you know, it was not very, my problem. It was it was basically there's people working on that. This was never in, because he's not a strategically significant yep. actor. Um, his his case because of his citizenship presents all these hard issues, but it's been clear from the outset the government certainly was never trying to have a citizen detainee case, and no one at the at the senior levels of the White House, it, you know, from the the most uh, unpredictable people to the most predictable people, no one seemed to think there was something in it for them to seize on this and try to make a stink out of this case. All along, seem, seems that everyone has just wanted to find a way to make it go away. Now they've finally done that. All right. So then then the second point, and the one where I'm not sure you're going to agree with me, is another way to look at this is this really suggests, much as I thought of the sort of conclusion in Hamdi, that the government just didn't have that much, right? So, so let me go back to Hamdi for a second before pivoting to, to Al Sheikh. In Hamdi, you know, the whole point was that once the Supreme Court required the government to provide more than just an affidavit to justify the factual predicate for Hamdi's military detention, that's when the government settled. Um, which, you know, I can't say for sure suggests that the government didn't have much beyond the mob's declaration, but certainly implies that. So right? my read of, of that episode was different. In the mob's declaration, Michael Mobbs was the official who had put in a declaration uh, swearing to certain facts about the circumstances of Yasser Hamdi's capture. It, it is possible that perhaps uh, when push came to shove and they contemplated an evidentiary hearing in habeas for Yasser Hamdi, that they thought, you know, actually, once an attorney like cross-examines the uh, you know the declarant, and, and we're not we're not able to produce the Northern Alliance guys who were the original uh, fact witnesses. Yep. Maybe they thought they couldn't make it stick. That's definitely possible. Yeah. But I always thought that the reason they were so quick to get rid of him was um, they were mindful because at the same time you had the prospect of a statutory, at least for a while there, you had the prospect of statutory habeas for the Gitmo detainees under uh, the Rasul decision, and I think they were eager to prevent. Hamdi from functioning as the proof of concept and showing, look how this works. It was feasible. See, you were able to put on evidence. Therefore, stop resisting it as to this much larger and more salient class of non-citizen detainees at Gitmo. That plus just the bad optics of a U.S. citizen detainee. So I think they just thought, you know what? He's small fry, just like Al Sheikh here. Right. And they wanted rid of him. Fair enough. But then I guess the question is, given that that's now no longer an issue for Gitmo today, right? That there, there's no similar proof of concept problem because the, the concept has been proven for, for all the current, you know, 40 Gitmo detainees. It makes me wonder if the government, Bobby, just never had enough evidence to pursue your material support prosecution theory or perhaps even more powerfully to really have to defend on the merits the legality of, of even if they're right on the theory, right? Even if they even if they won on the the legal questions, AUMF applies to ISIS. AUMF as applied to ISIS satisfies non detention act. They couldn't make the factual predicate. So I I don't think so. I really do think based. I really I, urge, I called that by the way. Yeah yeah I know. Uh, I urge people to go back and look at um, the FBI declaration that accompanied the government's return on habeas. And you if you're, if you're looking for a shortcut to this, if you search uh, Lawfare Chesney. Um, Dovey Mattis and 
uh, what was what was the title I put on this thing? It was something like evidentiary mm. dispute or the fact dispute. I think was the title. The fact dispute in Dovey Mattis. You'll find my post on this where I kind of lay out. Look, here's here's the early set of factual statements about. Uh, from Doe's side saying that he was a freelance journalist who was just trying to see what was going on there and the government's response. And I catalog some of the key evidence that's cited by the FBI. Uh, it, it's all more than enough for a material support prosecution, in my view. And I think would also, combined with something we learned in the New York Times article yesterday, there's there's at least as good evidence here as we see succeeding in the Gitmo habeas cases, uh, including the fact that you've got the Islamic State uh, formal bureaucratic intake form that all enrolled Islamic State uh, foreign personnel had to had to fill out. It's like your like your little Islamic State CV. There's one that matches him. Apparently, they've actually that's partly how the Times figured out who the guy was early on. Sure. But I mean, I mean, he has a he has a compelling you know possibly right, counter compelling counter narrative. Right. But this seems no worse or better than the stuff that goes on at Gitmo. I think it's more obvious they really didn't want to contest those legal issues because, as as you and I have noted a lot, there is no other case uh, that has had a real prospect of producing a judicial ruling on whether the AOMF covers the Islamic State. And so, and so much, even if they yeah. were like 80% confident they were going to win, right, that yeah. litigation risk might have been too much to make this one small fry work. Exactly. His small fryness makes <laughs> it not important. Now, if somebody thought – if they thought he was more dangerous, if they thought this is a guy who's going to kill somebody as soon as he gets out, if they thought that as opposed to probably thinking this is this confused, you know, lost sheep kind of person who makes terrible decisions, but – He's not probably about to go kill somebody. Then I, you know, I don't think they'd have turned him loose the way they did. They might have taken their chances. Maybe, yeah, maybe. Um, yeah. But so, 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 let's talk about sort of what what the case settles and what it leaves unsettled. Yeah. So I think we have a point of disagreement about Another the one. extent to which this functions as a practical precedent that is beneficial to the government. Um, I view this case as if if I'm a, if I'm the DoD general counsel's office person looking at this and thinking. Hey, if we have a similar thing fall into our laps tomorrow, another citizen detainee, do I look at Dovey Madison and think, all right, I've got a year of de facto discretion to do anything we want with him, and perhaps longer since they never did get to a court decision on the merits. I wouldn't look at it that way. I would look at this as, oh, my God, this is going to be a tar baby. It'll probably go through with a different judge much, much quicker. We're going to have a much more uh, clearly defined pathway towards how you would litigate it and including the early and critical decision by Judge Chutkin to indeed allow the ACLU lawyers who wanted to represent Doe to have access to him to find out, does he want to accept their services? So now you've got that precedent working against you to kind of speed the process or smooth the process along of ensuring an an advocacy group like the ACLU will be able, as soon as there's a report to the media or a leak to the media about the detention, to interject itself in the case. I'm thinking this is something that, you know, WMS is not a happy precedent for me, uh, even though they were able to string it out for 13 months. I think it's strung out so long in large part because, A, they were negotiating these past, what, four, five months at this point. Uh, B, before that, there were there was a multi-month period where everything got stayed while they all argued over the transfer to Saudi Arabia. And for whatever reason, I, th- I think ultimately the result shows this was probably smart lawyering on the whole. ACLU never pressed on the schedule. They didn't lean in hard with motions asking the court why, you know, why it's setting the, the hearing so far out and taking so much time and reaching the merits. Uh, indeed, the ACLU early on had bifurcated the proceeding, asking for the legal merits to be contested before we even talked about the factual merits. 
Um, they played a, uh, a long game in this case, and ultimately their client's walking free in a, in a good location. So I guess they played it right uh, for their client's interest. Listen, I, so I want to be as clear as possible. I have, I have no brief whatsoever for how the ACLU litigated this case. I think from their perspective, they did everything not only by the book, but they actually got more than perhaps they reasonably could have hoped for. Yeah. Um, they obtained a very good ruling from Judge Chutkin about their right to meet with uh, yeah. uh, then that was unnamed a, that citizen. That was a big deal. That's right? a precedent. There. Um, I mean, it's a district court decision. No, um, no, no. I mean, but in the yes. same sense that we're talking yeah, about here, yeah. like that, right. that looms large. Um, they successfully defended against the government's effort to transfer him, we think, to Saudi Arabia or potentially Iraq. Um, right. And and so, you know, and, and they ended up getting this deal, which I think is a really good deal. They right? got all of us talking about the Valentine <clears throat> rule endlessly. Listen, I, I, I have absolutely, I, I think the ACLU lawyers did heroic yeoman work here, and I have no problem with that. I think I've been clear before, and, and I'll just say it again because this could well be the last time we ever talk about Doe versus Mattis on this podcast. Prediction. Um, not. Really? Yeah. Okay. It'll come back somehow, some way. Well, that so there's my problem, right? It'll come back somehow, some way. <laughs> no, I meant him. <laughs> oh, no, I meant, I meant it. Um, here's my problem. My problem is, and I think this will not surprise anyone who's heard me rant about this before, that we went, that, that Doe ended up, Al-Sheikh ended up in U.S. military detention for 13 months, more than 13 months, with nary a judicial ruling about whether that detention was legal, and with nary a judicial ruling about how long the government was allowed to hold him before having to submit itself to judicial process. Um, I, I, I have no doubt that this is not a legal precedent, right? That that if and when there's another case like this, the government will not be able to say, we're entitled to 13 months right. of free time. Doe versus Mattis establishes. But in an area where there's not a lot of case law, in an area where, as we've discussed before, historical gloss tends to have at least some bearing on how some judges answer the relevant legal and constitutional questions, you know, I, I worry about the factual precedent that's set by this case and the government's ability to turn around the next case and say, you know, we really, I mean, that that case worked out fine and look how long it took and look how slowly it took. And and frankly, you know, I, I think the responsibility for that doesn't fall with the ACLU's lawyers who ethically are obligated to do what's best for their client, doesn't fall on the DOJ lawyers who are eth- ethically and, you know, statutorily obligated to do what's best for the United States. Um, I think it falls on the judge. And and I'm not, you know, so so I guess I'm, you know, sort of like, Three cheers for Doe versus Mattis, but two cheers for Judge Chutkin. So let me disagree in maybe an unexpected way or a different Ooh. way at least. Um, I, I agree with your assessment about the court's responsibility to lean in faster during the period after it was clear that uh, he would be represented, there would be habeas litigation, the petition and the return were filed, and then things got really, really slow before, at least publicly, maybe 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 the judge knew, but before there was public talk of how, wait a minute, we're, we're working on a deal to transfer him. There was a period where things moved much too slowly, so I'm in agree with, agreement with you there. Um, I won't go for three cheers for the overall result because I think this guy is getting off way too easy for someone who, based on his own social media activity before he went over there, seems to have been a huge fan of what the Islamic State was doing, you know, horrifically harming all these people, and he wanted to go be part of that action. And now he's walking free, and I think that's a shame. I think he should have been prosecuted. But um, we will see what happens uh, in the future. We'll see if we get echo cases. 
you know, with the decline of the territorial uh, presence of the Islamic State, the, uh, the, the, the corresponding cutoff or a reduction in enthusiasm for recruitment of foreign fighters coming into the Islamic State, and uh, this, I think most observers feel that we're sort of moving into this next phase period where the Islamic State will revert back to what Al-Qaeda has had to be for quite a while now, which is, um, you know, not holding territory, hiding out where it can, uh, inspiring violence where they can, doing some recruiting and training where they can. Um, the realm of possible captures mm-hmm. is going gonna, is, is gonna to continue to shrink. Yeah. And so I think the the... the period there where it seemed really likely that we were going to get a wave of military detainees in U.S. custody because the president claimed we were going to. No, no, no. Clearly, the president's not going to make good you, on you, that. You and I never thought that was real, right? Yeah. I mean, you and I thought that was like some of the rest of the stuff we're going to talk about today, bright, shiny objects. Yeah. But, you know, the I, I guess I just, I can't shape. So I'm scarred by the experience of the lack of precedent that was that ended up being set in the three big, you know, U.S. person detention cases, um, Hamdi, Padilla, and Almari, where in Hamdi's case, you know, there was never a merits ruling on remand. In Padilla's case, you well, know— a merits ruling on the, on the evidence, on right? the factual, so, so, On the factual sufficiency yeah. of the government's case. Yeah. Um, where in Padilla, you know, it sure looked like there were five votes to rule against the government on the merits, but we never found out because the whole case went away on the eve of the cert petition in Padilla too. That, so can I contrast those two? It's an interesting comparison where Hamdi—the government wins on the law. Yeah. Uh, we but, don't know whether Hamdi right. is going to win on the facts, although, you know, it, I'm not so confident he would have won on the facts, but who knows. Um, with Padilla, and obviously Padilla later on is convicted, but beyond a reasonable doubt, convicted for a lot for some of the things, the affiliation with al-Qaeda, that was the basis. You're looking at me like you don't agree with that, but that's clearly what happened. Um, I'm sorry. I, the re- the, the, the he was reason- convicted for conspiring with al-Qaeda. Uh, to, be, to, to, to be involved in, in, in murderous acts overseas. The, exactly the, so. Right, the justification that was offered for his detention as enemy combatant was that he was involved in plots to detonate radiological no, dirty no, no, bombs no, no, in no. the United States. No, 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 no. He was detained. I watched that press conference. Let me, let me finish my sentence. <laughs> he was detained as a military detainee because of his membership in al-Qaeda. Yes, the government alleged the stuff about the plot to carry out you know, this attack or that attack, but the basis for the detention wasn't action-specific. It is based on his status. The, those determinations can only be made based on status. The actions are just alleged evidence. The fact that he was convicted in a federal criminal court, civilian federal criminal court later on, for conspiring to join al-Qaeda is pretty ample evidence that he, if given a, uh, a habeas hearing, if he'd, if he'd gotten a habeas hearing on the evidentiary basis that he was, uh, the government's claim oh. that he was in al-Qaeda, he, I think that it's clear the government would have been able oh. to detain him. If they had, so, so, but you're jumping over the question of whether the government would have had legal authority if it had made its factual no, that, case. My point is it's contrasting no, no, comparison, I, right? I, oh, I agree with that. Okay, yeah. I'm sorry. So, so, so. We yeah, we're in agreement. Agree. Okay. Yeah. And then in Almari, right, you actually had the en banc fourth circuit you know, issue a Hamdi-like decision that was wiped out by the Supreme Court when the government transferred him to us. So my problem is, you know, as you recall, when Congress passed the FY 2012 NDAA, there was this huge debate back when we had huge debates on these issues um, about whether that new detention provision was going to apply to citizens. And everyone was like, well, what's the law? And you and I were like, uh, um, well, there's not really any law. 
Right? And well, so there, there's splintered opinions saying everything under the sun and the case law is a huge mess. Right. And across so all and, those Fourth Circuit decisions. So listen, I color me crazy, but I think this is an area where clarity would be beneficial to everybody, right? Where clarity in the law would make it easier for Congress to understand the backdrop against which it was legislating. It would make it easier for courts to figure out, you know, how quickly or not to move when the next case comes along. If, if I thought there was any interest, if, if this administration, this one, does yeah. have interest in actually trying to detain citizens yeah. in military custody, and it clearly doesn't. Like, it talks a big game. So far. So far, it's been a couple of years. They've had ample opportunity. There's, yeah. I, I, I think that we can, I think it's safe to say at this point that that is a serious concern, but it's it seems to be mostly academic. All these years in the, the 17... Years Fine. we've been dealing with. These are the cases but we've even, got. But even, the AU, but even the AUMF, the, the AUMF ISIS point is not rare, right? I mean, there are substantial sure, ongoing but that's a US different issue. I'm completely agree no, about no, that. No, no, no. But it's all part of the same problem, which to me is the lack of law generation, right? That, like here was the best chance for a federal court to actually say something meaningful, you know, fine. So you and I might think that the, the U.S. cases might, the U.S. person cases might be a small enough N to not care about. The ISIS cases are not a small N. And so here was a perfect opportunity for a court to say something meaningful on an issue that Judge Chutkin has to know is not going to be likely to, is not easily subject to litigation outside the habeas context. I think context. part of the difference between us here is that we do, we know we disagree about what the prospects for the ruling going against the government were. I was pretty confident that if it was a hundred percent going for the government, I would still feel this way. If it were if it were a a, a knock them out you know dead bangs uh, as Dan Epps says on first Monday stone cold you know stone what stone cold dead pipe lock or whatever it is, is that like a, that's like a gambling recommendation yeah, yeah. right um, <laughs> is my my lead pipe lock stone lead pipe cold cinch. lead pipe anyway um right Bobby <laughs> I, I want to be as clear as possible like my view on the value of generating merits rulings in these cases is completely not just largely it is completely untethered to what those rulings actually say. Because even if the district court said, oh my gosh, it is clear beyond peradventure that ISIS is covered by the 2001 AUMF, I would say, great, maybe I disagree, but at least now there is law and we can go to Congress and say, hey, Congress, do you agree with this? Yes or no? I think the questions amply put before Congress, even without John Doe having materialized and the courts having engaged, they have routinely and repeatedly put the funding into the into the war effort against the Islamic State. I, I don't think there's any need for the Chutkin position to be expressed for Congress to know that they ought to weigh in. You and I both agree Congress right, right. ought to weigh in. But look in. what happened with Gitmo, right? It was once there was this rich development of case law that Congress finally returns to the table because Congress sees value in codifying parts of the case law. and in You mean the NDAA? Yeah. Yeah, you know, to me, that was a bit of cowardice on the part of Congress where <laughs> after the courts right. had to engage in this oh, okay, common we'll law go. process, no, no, they I, said, I, yeah, okay, we'll ratify that. That look, seems to be working. All, so all this is to say, I mean, I, I think we've beaten this in the ground, yeah, right? Yeah. I just want to leave on, on one last point that's unrelated to this whole fight, which is the last thing that really bothers me about Doe versus Mattis is other than the New York, other than you know Charlie and and his colleagues at the New York Times, Rukmini and 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 Eric. the whole team and yeah. Eric, um, no one has cared about this case, <laughs> and and a good example of that is except I, you, dear listeners, you've been with us all along. I mean, I pitched an op-ed about you know the the denouement of all of this um, last night, um, and was told by someone who usually is you know. Um, uh, unjustifiably receptive to my pitches, um, <laughs> that there's just no app, that that there's just no interest in the story given the current news cycle. And my reaction, oh is, right, and my reaction to that is like, 
I understand where they're coming from. Like they as you know, a business matter. As a business yeah. matter, yeah. right? But like your job is to generate interest. I know there there is an agenda setting, not just power, but responsibility yes. to go all Peter Parker on you. With Ooh. great power comes great responsibility. Thank you, Spider Man. And there are some things that the public should know about, even if they didn't know to go looking. And for And even it. if it's not going to generate, you know, the same clickbait, yeah. right? That 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 you know the president's latest off the cuff. You know that the president leaving his umbrella at the top of the stairs oh on, on the on Air Force One generates. There was so, something compelling about that little image. So all this is to say, like I am, I am glad this case is over. I am troubled at what wasn't resolved, and I am bothered most of all by how, like you and I are two people on an island howling at the moon about why, like you know, we ought to care about this case and the fact that like it can't even break in yeah. to this news cycle. And that cycle is overcrowded with what? It's got... With stupidity. Stupidity. <laughs> like, it would, it would be one... So listen, if it were last week, right? If it were last week and the news cycle was dominated by the pipe bombs and by the shooting uh, at the black church, Yeah, right? that would be different. And by the massacre in Pittsburgh, yeah. right? That would be one thing. But instead, we are consumed with the 5,200 troops going to the border and birthright citizenship and other stupidity. All of which is being injected purposely into the news cycle. To distract be- us. Well, not, 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 not just to distract us. Quite, I actually think it's quite purposeful that the president would like everyone going to the polls or he'd like his right. base going to the polls right. to think, oh, my God, if I don't go vote for the GOP, right. we're right. going to have this no, immigration. The closing, statement, the closing statement is that we're about to be overrun by immigrants. Right, right. So in let's – Let's peel out the legal issues that touch on national security, starting with uh, the border deployment. Right, because because after yelling at after yelling at all at, about all of this, we're we're gonna we're gonna do it. Well, because as you said earlier, since everyone else insists on talking about this, it's important to have someone somewhere saying, "Okay, well, here's why this is not something that can be done," or or that uh, at least we should not spend time pretending that this is wide right. open. No one knows whether it's okay to suspend habeas. Uh, let's start with habeas suspension, Steve. This came. Up, I believe, because someone either a reporter, asked, a reporter out of nowhere, right, asked Sarah Huckabee Sanders if anyone was thinking about, you know, that's a little odd. Was it like, was this like a planted question, or was I this just like know. a terribly bad decision by? I, I don't know. I'm not. I, I don't. I don't want to name names, but but she, I, but she her response wasn't no, that's ridiculous, but rather saying, well, we haven't decided about. So that. listen, so 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 her response. I mean, plenty of people. Um, including um, one of my favorite Twitter accounts to follow, uh, at NYC Southpaw, um, have have pointed out um, that we really ought not to read into her hedgy, you know, we haven't, we haven't, you know, we haven't taken that off the table response, um, like some nefarious plot on the part of the Trump administration, that it's either a reflection of the fact that she had no idea what the heck she was being asked, and that was her stock response. Yeah. Well, so maybe right? we should maybe we shouldn't even dignify the exchange with well, the discussion, but let's just, or should let's we just say let's just take thirty seconds to explain why this is nuts. Okay. So the Constitution has the pr- a rule, the about suspension clause, yes. Article One, Section Nine, Clause Two: The privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless, when in cases of rebellion or invasion, the public safety may require it. So conspiracy lefty Twitter is all Twitter with the idea that this is why President Trump has been calling it an invasion. Yeah. No. No, 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 this no, is, no, this is not why he's been, he's been calling it an invasion. Because he wants people to be wound scared. up and fearful. Right. right. This, this is not, he was not laying down careful markers to, to, <laughs> for, to, to, to foreshadow his coming suspension clause argument. And the critical point, I guess, is that even if in some way, shape or fashion, you could turn this, uh, these 3,500, is it, uh, 
would-be immigrants into an invasion in the constitutional sense, which is obviously not not what they had in mind. Um, you then have to make the case that public safety requires removal of judicial re- that public safety is endangered in a constitutional sense if judges are allowed to adjudicate the legal and evidentiary bases via habeas corpus for detaining people without criminal charge. Come on, that's ridiculous. Um, it is. It is. Silly on its face. I'm not sure we should dignify it with further discussion. I'll say one more thing, which is in any event. So so they're they're leaving aside all of this. There's the separate problem. The president can't unilaterally suspend habeas corpus. But Lincoln did. Well, so so at, as I teach my con law students, um, first, Lincoln was rebuffed by Tawney in Ex parte Merriman. But second, even if you think Lincoln was right, and I actually try to make the case that he right. wasn't totally frivolous, right. Congress, Congress was not in session. in session. Yes, exactly so. So even if there is some residual emergency, somebody's got to be able to break the glass. And if the designated glass breaker, Congress, isn't there in an emergency, the president needs to be able to break the glass. Uh, that's not this case. So uh, we're done. Moving along. No more habeas. All right. Posse comment this is next. This one's more interesting. And I actually think this one's more significant and legitimate as a debate, right? President announced after planning this for a long time, he's sending 5,200 troops to the border now because of this caravan that might get there in two months. All right. So this is a, always a fun opportunity to tell people what is the Posse Comitatus Act, the strength of the community, the power of the community, oh. the Posse Comitatus. So 18 U.S.C. Section 1385 dates back to 1878. And basically it provides that the president cannot use the Army or Air Force, note, Navy Coast Guard not covered, hmm. um, for domestic, for ordinary domestic law enforcement. And this is all part of the post-Reconstruction, uh, the unwinding of Reconstruction. The the uh, the idea here was to respond in a way to prevent the federal government in the future. And we're only talking here about the federal government. This doesn't affect how a governor might deploy a state National Guard force. Um, to prevent the federal government from using the uh, Union military— right. To enforce law and order, as, as had to be as, done. Had, as was done in the in the unreconstructed South from 1865 to 1877, it was, was one of the major and necessary ways to respond to KKK violence. Yep. So um, listen, the the Posse Contas Act's origins are actually deeply nefarious. Exactly. Um, so. But over time, I think it has come to stand for a less nefarious and more generally accepted constitutional norm. No, it's a, it's a libertarian norm about the limited role of the military right. within our domestic society. And in fact, interesting fact, Bobby, um, we are currently in the longest period in American history where the president has not deployed troops domestically um, under the, under one of the most important statutes that satisfies the Posse Comitatus Act, the, the Insurrection Act. So the Posse Comitatus Act is not a bar on domestic use of the law uh, of the military for law enforcement. It's a clear statement rule that the president may only use the military for domestic law enforcement purposes if Congress has expressly authorized it. Via in, in Declaring an insurrection is one way to do that? Well, because the Insurrection Act is one of the sort of um, uh, standby authorities that, that I think everyone understands satisfies the Posse Comitatus right. Act. But we are in the longest period right now in all of American history. Why is that? Without an invocation of the Insurrection Act. Is that because our police forces are so much more militarized and capable of doing the level of... Uh, coercive enforcement in extreme circumstances. I think that's. That I, think that's I, th- I think that's a large part of it. That there's just no longer the need for federal supplementing yeah. of or and and that there are other authorities that can be used. For example, for natural disasters. That's not the Insurrection Act. That's the Stafford Act. Yeah. National disasters are a totally different deal. There's. A mis- so here's a key concept with all this law that I think people miss when they hear the military is being deployed to do something domestically and they think posse comitatus. 
Posse comitatus is triggered if you're talking about arresting people. And you're talking about no, no. It's also, I mean, it's also triggered for disaster assistance. Just the Stafford Act satisfies the Posse Comitatus Act. No, but but it's clear from this structure of statutes that the government can deploy the military to provide uh, unique transportation assets, unique uh, logistical support assets, and all these other sort of non-arrest activities. And the key thing about this military deployment that's being ordered here is, I do not believe there's to be any arresting done or any detaining directly performed by these 5,200 soldiers, right? They're going down there to provide uh, helicopters, to uh, to take over some of the duties. This is what typically happens at the border. The uh, deployment of, of the federal military forces is to take over duties that otherwise would have to be manned by CBP agents who are then freed to go up and, and go out into the field to conduct arrests themselves. And so there's sort of a, a personnel shifting effect. Is that right? I think that's right. Um, and but but the key point here, right, is that um, this uh, my understanding of the deployment President Trump announced yesterday is this also is not under the Insurrection Act, right? That this is actually using yeah, other just, authorities yeah. to deploy active guard troops, right, and to deploy a couple of other units, um, not for purposes of repelling an invasion. No, that's right. But in what I want to underscore is what they're doing. Whether I completely get this is all a bunch of political baloney yeah. that's not serving a real uh, policy purpose. But there's nothing in it that, to me, from what I've seen of what their assigned duties are going to be, that that even comes close to crossing the line of what we would actually think is an improper role absent an insurrection, absent that kind of finding. I don't see anything improper in what they're being asked to do. Um, so I don't see anything legally improper. I, I think there's a there's a there's a very important policy argument about why it's necessary, right? Like I mean, you know, the caravan that is the purported justification for this deployment is first of all not an invading force. No, no, right? completely and, agree. And but second, that's why I began by saying I that I don't agree. I agree that this is all a bunch of pol- yeah, yeah. Uh, political nonsense. Yeah, no, but legally, right? So so you know, one might then think that if Congress cared about this topic. It might want to revisit the statutory authorities that allow for these deployments to clarify that actually you need more than just the president asserting that this is a thing. You know, that's an interesting question of administrability and the danger of, you know, we talk about bad cases make bad law. Uh, Is it possible that some of the things that Trump does that really only Trump would do uh, to corral them through legislation might inhibit the type of flexibility you would normally want yeah. any normal president to be able to have. I mean, that, you know, you'd want to draft it carefully. You um, certainly would. But anyway, all this is to say that, like, you know, posse comitatus is one of those principles that I think is often thrown out there but misunderstood. All it is is a clear statement rule. And, you know, whatever you think of the Trump deployment of troops, and I think my views are clear, um, not a violation of the Posse Comitatus Act. So the next and related issue as part of this larger program of putting immigration fears front and center in the election Woo-hoo! is this uh, sudden return of something that's actually been floating around for a long time. We've seen it uh, off and on for many years. It's not unique to Trump. Yep. This idea that maybe it's time to try to put a stop to the American rule about birthright citizenship. That is, you're, you're born here even of non-citizen parents, but you're born on U.S. soil. Therefore, you're born with U.S. citizenship. So Unless is- you're born in American Samoa. <laughs> there, there's some consequences once we move outside the continental United States and the, the 50 states. We'll talk about that, too. But first, let's talk about just the, the sort of progression of key constitutional ideals here. Well, can, can, I, start, can, can I go even yeah. one step further? Oh, yeah. This is not a close question. 
Um, I mean, so Walter Dellinger testified in 1995, went back when he was the assistant attorney general in charge of the Office of Legal Counsel. And he said, I'm going to paraphrase him, but he said something to the effect of, at OLC, we are often tasked with considering difficult constitutional questions. This is not one of them. Right. He was responding to legislative proposals to change this rule. Right. Doing it by executive order is is not any better. No, in fact, I would say it's it's much, 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 much. Sorry, I'm stuck. Much, yeah. much, much, much worse. Yeah. It's so obviously not something the president by executive order can do, except I, I think I see where this is coming from, and I'll explain what I think is going on here. Um, there have been a number of academics over the years who've argued for a particular narrow reading of the case law in this area, which I'll unpack in a moment. Right. Um, and then building on that, on that idea that there may be a, some stuff about the case law that's not 100% settled by the Supreme Court itself – some have argued, and there's there's a guy named John Fear, I gather, who's how appropriately named is that John Fear, uh, involved with uh, ICE, I think, and he has argued that what the president could and should do is issue an executive order speaking only to those less clearly settled right. by president cases and say, as to those cases, I'm directing right. you know no issuance of social security numbers. And there's blah, blah, and, blah. There, and there's an op-ed by Michael Anton, who I think was a former NSC staffer in the Washington Post in July. That was basically saying this, this issue hasn't been settled. Um, right. So, so let's talk about what has been settled and okay. what hasn't so, and historically well, how it got Let's start there. with where this comes from. So um, there, what, we, un, we had principles of birthright citizenship at the founding. I mean, right, the, the Constitution itself requires the president, among other things, to be a natural-born citizen, which, of course, begs this whole question about, you know. And this was not, this was not some concept the framers cooked up. Nope. Uh, Anglo-American common law had long since established concepts, of, as of course it would have to, about who's a citizen and who's not. There was a, there was some stuff that was unclear about it, but there was a, a generally settled common law understanding about birthright citizenship, right. uh, use soli. Um, Versus use sanguinis. Now, this gets... Obviously, famously, infamously ugly in Dred Scott at mid-century in the 19th century with this uh, outrageously narrow – there's Roger Taney again uh, ruling narrowly to try to exclude all Af- persons of African Chief descent. Chief Justice Taney has made a couple of cameos in today's episode. He does. Um, that's not necessarily ever a good sign. <laughs> but so, so, so Dred Scott, right? So Dred Scott holds that for purposes of diversity jurisdiction, uh, which requires that you be a citizen of a state, right? Um, even though Dred Scott was, you know, a person – Right, and even though he had children who had been born on U.S. soil, that none of them were citizens, because Dred Scott held that if you were a slave or descendant of a slave, you were not entitled to be a citizen under the federal constitution. Therefore, you were not a citizen of a state for purposes of diversity right. jurisdiction. This, this fundamentally flawed ruling helps. Pre- first of all, helps precipitate the Civil War itself, but most importantly, there's both the Civil Rights Act after the war, and then the. Well, I 14th- said the Civil War was most important, but. Uh, no, I said I, I messed it. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Um, you were quite right about that. Um, leading to the Fourteenth right. Amendment of the United to the Constitution, which the very, very first sentence of which very clearly was meant to address and settle the citizenship question. It makes it as clear as clear can be that if you're born in the United States and you are a citizen, birthright citizenship. Uh, Steve's going to punch up the text here so we can quote it at you properly. But the the point is, this then becomes the basis for disputes through the rest of the 19th century. Sort of. uh, Uh, But that the Supreme Court resolves, right? Right. No, that's that's where I was going. I know, I know. know. Uh, You're you're undermining my flow here. I'm sorry. Um, You have flow, buddy. That's right. So you have the Chinese, uh, the amount of legislation trying to prevent citizenship for immigrant Chinese is is another stain on 19th century history. 
Um, one thing that happens is you have a long period where immigrant Chinese are, are clearly not citizens. Even when domiciled permanently in the United States, they're, they're not citizens in some circumstances. And uh, you have a guy named Wong Kim Ark, who's born in San Francisco, of non-citizen Chinese immigrant parents uh, sometime maybe the late 1860s, early 1870s. Uh, in any event, uh, he travels in and out of the country a few times without incident. But one time they try to bar him from reentering the United States saying, you're no citizen, you're, you're Chinese. And he's like, I'm from San Francisco. What are, you, <laughs> what are you talking about? And this goes all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court issues a decision in Wong Kim Ark that is the decision on yes. birthright citizenship. So, so let's start with the text. Of, so the text of the 14th Amendment is that all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. The whole fight is about that middle clause. That's right. And there was a common law understanding against which that language was adopted. And, and, and just if you want to read one really good thing um, about, forget the case law, just in context, what Congress thought it was doing when it drafted the citizenship clause um, and how it was understood at the time, um, Jim Ho, who is now a Fifth Circuit judge, who was appointed by... President Trump, um, right, wrote a green bag essay back in 2006 um, that basically is the sort of original understanding of birthright citizenship. And he says, the whole point of this subject to the jurisdiction thereof language was not to limit birthright citizenship to individuals, was not about lawful presence, Bobby, right? It was about carving out three hyper-narrow categories. That had always been carved out. That had always been carved out. So the three categories are, one, Native Americans, um, not all Native Americans, but Native American children who are born on Native American reservations and who choose to live apart from the United States, right? So this this derives from the original constitutional text, Indians not taxed. And there's an 1884 Supreme Court case, Elk versus Wilkins, that reaffirms that the Citizenship Clause does not apply to that one narrow category. This was meant to be a preservation of Indian sovereignty. For those Native Americans who chose to live apart, right? right? Okay. Two, um, alien enemies on U.S. soil during wartime. So Mm -hmm. if a soldier came over here and had a baby, right? Um, No, not a citizen. Because otherwise, that would be kind of crazy. Um, three, and I think this is the category with which we're the most familiar, children of diplomats, right? That diplomats who are here in an official diplomatic capacity are not subject to the jurisdiction thereof. The, the whole point is you are not properly subject to the regulatory power of the United States. Therefore, if you have a child here, not a citizen. Okay. So against that backdrop and, and entrenching that reading yep. of it all into Supreme Court case law. Wong Kim Ark says... Yes. Right. Now, the, the space that's left open that, that these uh, the revisionists have been working at is the idea that Wong Kim Ark's parents were permanently living in San right. Francisco. So it's factually distinguishable on the ground that that case did not specifically involve undocumented immigrants. Right. And so they say, well, so you've got all these people, tourists, people who enter illegally, asylum seekers. You've got all sorts of people who are factually distinguishable from, from the parents. The Therefore, somehow it's not settled. Right. But, of course, you have endless amounts of other practice and lower court decisions, all of which go the other way. Well, and before we even get there, so I'm with you and I want to get to that. Before we even get there, just for the non-lawyers out there, 
Factual distinctions are sometimes a plausible basis on which to distinguish a case if the case really was fact-specific. But in Wong Kim Ark, the point was not that the case turned in any way on the fact that the parents were uh, of lawful status. The court was construing the subject to the jurisdiction thereof language. There's no reason why its interpretation of that language would mean right. one thing when the parents were from one, you know, of one status right. and another thing of no, another. That, that's the critical point. If you're trying to read the Supreme Court's decision narrowly, the fact that you can come up with variance in the fact pattern doesn't necessarily mean no, in, it's in, in law that, that doesn't help you if you're trying to if you're really trying to engage in a process of analogy and okay. distinction. It only matters if it's pertinent to the actual legal reasoning, which it wasn't in this particular case. And in any event, so fast forward, Bobby. I mean, there's other case law, but why don't we just fast forward to Plyler versus Doe? Yep. Right. So in Plyler versus Doe in 1982, the Supreme Court in a case about whether, uh, so Texas had purported to withdraw from local school districts funding for education of children who were not legally admitted, right? Basically, um, the in that case, it wasn't about birthright citizenship. It was about whether the children themselves who were not citizens and were undocumented mm -hmm. were nevertheless entitled to- Free public education. Exactly. The Supreme Court says yes. Um, but in a footnote, footnote 10, Justice Brennan goes out of his way to say that the distinction people are trying to argue for between undocumented immigrants and documented immigrants is foreclosed by Wong Kim Ark, right? So he confirms yeah. what should have been true anyway just from reading the 1898 opinion. So it's not even the case, as long as as long as Plyler v. Doe is good law, which it is, it's not the case that the Supreme Court hasn't weighed in on this. And let me just, if you'll forgive me, I'd like to read the footnote just because yeah. I don't want to leave Let's do it. Room for per, room for doubt. Now, was that was that Brennan writing alone, or was it? No, no, it was the majority yeah, opinion. The majority opinion. There Sorry. you go. Um, so it says, um, da, 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 I want to make sure I get this right. Um, as one early commentator noted, comma, given the historical emphasis on geographic territoriality, bounded only, if at all, by principles of sovereignty and allegiance, no plausible distinction with respect to Fourteenth Amendment jurisdiction can be drawn between resident aliens whose entry into the United States was lawful and resident aliens whose entry was unlawful. There you go. The right. end. I think we're done. Well, but so so then what the heck, right? I mean, so you and I, I think, agree, right, that whatever people might think of the merits of these decisions, a president cannot contravene a Supreme Court decision interpreting the Constitution by executive order. The only two ways to do that are to get the Supreme Court to overrule itself, and despite the widespread cynicism about the current court, I don't see that happening no, here. No, this court's not going to do that. Or a constitutional amendment. So right. the president has lawyers, Bobby. They've told him this. Well, so first of all, you, that assumes that he's engaging in a process of legal analysis and policy formation informed by the best views of the lawyers. Of course, that's not what's going on here. This is about setting certain narratives, planting narrative seeds in the run-up to the election. Um, now, does that mean he won't actually issue some order purporting to direct various parts of the executive branch to act in accordance with this, we think, incorrect interpretation? Oh, of course it doesn't mean that. He, he may well do that, uh, in which case there will be litigation that he eventually will lose. Uh, and it's not that hard to imagine, Steve, that some sh political strategist within his operation uh, might be thinking, hey, this could be our new travel ban. Stephen Miller, maybe? It's very easy to imagine that someone like Miller might look at this and think, you know, travel ban was very useful politically to us. We're going to need something like that again. Go to the Here, polls. Here's our new one. Yeah, maybe. I, I just It's so cynical, right? I mean, it's just like, you know, th this is not a lefty-righty issue. Like, I mean, this is just... The, you know, birthright citizenship is one of those things that I just think is like a core constitutional principle. And uh, you know, there's a 
whole lot of Americans whose ancestors became citizens that way. Yeah. Um, all right. Enough of that. What about what should we say about the horrors of political violence and uh, unhinged people reacting to unhinged conspiracy theories and going out and really killing in horrific ways people in America? Um from a legal national security law perspective, I mean, first of all, I think it's important to acknowledge that it is a national security issue, that, that peacetime, uh, internal violence inspired by politics and policy disagreement, that counts, in my opinion. And I'm sure you agree with that. Yep. Um, in terms of what it could mean in terms of law reform, are there are there substantive laws we need so that we can properly prosecute it? I, you and I have argued before that that's not really the case. That there's there's ample federal criminal law and plenty of state and local law that that criminalizes these activities. It's true we don't have, it's often noted we don't have a material support law that runs to domestic organizations or groupings. the The twenty three thirty nine A and twenty three thirty nine B frameworks. Uh, 2339B in particular, uh, runs only to designated foreign terrorist organizations. We don't have, and and I think my instinct is, although I'd want to think about this more, I don't think we want a, do, a domestic foreign uh, terrorist organization, a, a DTO framework, where it becomes a uh, crime where you just take the material support concept and map that on to domestically identified groups. I think that would raise some challenging questions. I mean, the, the 2339B model it's very aggressive as a preventive charging tool yeah. that effectively functions like an embargo on right. foreign non-state actors. I Turning the embargo concept internal. No, no. I, it would raise a whole bunch of messy constitutional questions. Yeah. The other thing is, I, mean, I think it's worth stressing. I don't – my sense of what we know about the suspects in both the pipe bombing case and in the Pittsburgh synagogue case is that, you know, they weren't – or parts of organized, right. no, no, quite right. You know, I mean, yeah, they were sort they're of inspired by, yeah, but not, I mean, but not, but not in any way acting upon direction or guidance or support of any organization. No, it's very right. analogous to somebody who is an Islamist extremist who reads Inspire magazine from AQAP and says, "Man, that's exactly what I should be doing," and goes out and kills a bunch of people based on the ideology with right. which he's inspired. These are people getting not from. Well, in some cases, I think there are actually organizations that put out these ideas. So that's a separate issue. Um, they're not putting out the ideas necessarily in quite the same direct, here's how to build a bomb, please go do this as soon as you get the chance way that AQAP at its in its peak with Inspire Magazine was doing. It's more that they're setting in, in, in more indirect language. They're setting the incentives out there and the ideas out there in a, in a more subtle yet nonetheless horrific way. It just doesn't seem to cry out for, nor do we have this uh, lacuna of inability to prosecute in these cases. So between conspiracy law and its and its other manifestations, I think what we've we've got what we need there. But you know, you and I we've been talking a lot about investigative powers in our yep. recent deep dive series, and we noted that there was in the early '70s a moment where the Supreme Court in the Keith case had teed up the idea of a domestic intelligence surveillance act. The idea would be. You could get a wiretapping warrant without having to show a probable cause link to criminal activity if you could show a probable cause link to domestic intelligence needs. In our system, as we noted in our, our first deep dive episode, we've never gone that route in the modern era. We have never separately uh, developed and institutionalized the idea of non-criminal domestic, non-foreign-focused intelligence investigations for a host of reasons. We argued in that first episode 
that the first reason is there's not a lot of need. You can get what you need through the criminal investigative process to deal with these sorts of problems. I think that's still right. Uh, and, we, and we second noted that it seems contrary to the American domestic libertarian tradition to embrace the idea of a free-floating, non-foreign intelligence-focused intel function that's not connected in some organic way to the law enforcement function. Um, a lot of societies do bifurcate that. They have internal security intelligence that doesn't have powers of arrest, that, but does have investigative powers, often sweeping investigative powers. And then that feeds into analytic processes and it feeds into other institutional actors, could feed into another institution arresting. We don't do that. We just have the FBI, which has the domestic intelligence missions, but it's but in this sense, it's not a standalone. Um, for all the horrors of what's going on now, Steve, I think we've still got the right framework. I'd have to see some real reason to believe that there was an investigation that should have been occurring that wasn't. There were arrests that should have been made that weren't. And before I thought we need to change our ways. And I don't see, for all these horrors, I don't see that being part of uh, the lessons learned. I agree with that. I was just add that I mean, one of the curiosities of both the pipe bombings and the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting is that unlike, for example, the Austin bombings, and unlike some of the other mass shootings, these actually fall into areas where there are specific federal criminal laws. Um, so the targets in the pipe bomb context include at least some people who are specially protected mm -hmm. by federal law. Um, and, you know, the attack on the synagogue was a hate crime um, and, and falls into various federal criminal statutes that specifically allow the federal government and not just the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania to punish acts directed at a members of a religious group based upon their religious affiliation. I think that there's there's it's good to have this superfluity of choices of how you charge it and who gets involved in the investigation. Here, I, I, I see no no gap in enforcement enthusiasm or interest. Um, so this raises a separate question, Steve. Uh, it, it nonetheless feels like this isn't just sort of uh, the cost of doing business of living in America. That something's wrong. Uh, what would you say is something as a prescriptive matter that we ought to be doing differently than we are doing in light of what we're seeing? Is it is it gun control? Is it is it about the president's rhetoric? Is it all the above? Or is there is there something else? Is is it mental health? I mean, in a lot of these cases, we we often don't focus on this enough. Yeah. In many of these cases, the 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 overriding factor, and this will be true by the way, in yeah. some of the uh, foreign terrorism cases yep. where you have people you know, involved in extremist Islamist violence, but there's a mental health issue that so looms really large. Th there's no question that in at least some of these cases, there, you know, the the fundamental defects in our mental health system um, are not helping. Um, I would say, and perhaps you and I will disagree on this point, that the laxity of many of our gun control laws um, doesn't, it's not that those laws make these things happen. It's that those laws make it easier for individuals who are dedicated to causing, to wreaking this violence, to do so. Well, when it comes to assault weapons, it certainly increases the amount of, of death that can be caused. Right. And, and, so, and the difficulty on the police in responding to be right. able to overcome the, Total, the I mean, attacker. So, I mean, listen, it, there are lots of things to say about President Trump's despicable and indefensible reaction to what happened on Saturday. I'll just say that, you know, he's talking about how if only they had an armed guard, three of the victims were police, were armed police officers. Uh, that's right. A lot of police... Uh, a lot of police shot trying to take right. down this guy so, with his assault you know, weapon. So, so I, I don't think we need to spend any time on President Trump's indefensible reaction to what happened on Saturday. Bobby, I think it's a smorgasbord. I think it's an array of reactions that don't necessarily require tightening federal criminal laws. 
but that probably do require, you know, more resources, that probably do require, you know, more attention to gun law, even though I know that that's a, a political, a, a hot rail politically. Um, but also, I mean, there's just, there's a more basic conversation to have about the consequences of the toxicity of our current discourse. See, I, I think there's something really to that. I, you could never draw, maybe in some of these cases, you can't draw a specific line between any one particular thing. Any political figure or non-political, but nonetheless publicly uh, visible figure has said or done. But the amount of winking and nodding about conspiracy right. theories in, that, that seem to kind of, in this bizarre way, kind of conflate anti-Semitism, bring it in with this Soros. nativism and using yep. Soros as a shorthand for it all. Yep. Um, there are mentally unstable individuals out there. They're going to have access to assault weapons in some cases. Uh, and, and when you've got this larger climate, that seems to create this perfect storm where horrors like this take place. Right. I, mean, I, I would never for a second say that the divisive rhetoric that President Trump is largely but not entirely responsible for caused what happened last week, right? I mean, there's just, you know, maybe it did, maybe it didn't. We'll never prove it, right? But man, I mean, the, the, the reaction should not be, let me blame everybody else, right? The reaction should not be, yeah, if only the media would stop saying mean things about me, right? That's not what's causing this. That word media, you mean the enemy of the people? Yes, the fake news, which, which apparently, when, he's, when he called the media the enemy of the people, he only meant the fake news media. And by the way, we know his definition of fake news is anything that he doesn't like. Right. So I, my problem is that, like, you and I have fought over and over again about our differences of opinion on when and how Republican members of Congress who have real principled disagreements um, with President Trump's rhetoric and with his leadership and with his, you know, public statements could use their power to exact leverage against him. And, you know, to me, Bobby, this is the consequences of them not doing so is that the president has, he gets no pushback from his own party. When you say this is the consequence. Sorry, the, 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 the you're, not, you're not saying the not, not the violence. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Not the violence. Yeah. But the, the, president the president being able to respond to what happened last week the way he did. And the widespread view on the right that, for example, the mail bombs were a false flag operation. Which, by the way, was endorsed by a whole lot of commentators who should have known better. Oh, that was that was horrific, and and no one, no one should be uh, given a free pass if they touted that false flag baloney. So uh, anyway, I, I say all this just to say that, like, you know, I, I understand that, like, you know, politics are divisive, and that's just the nature of the beast. But if ever if ever there was a time for leadership and to say like you know let's actually remember that what unites us is stronger than what divides us i'm going to play something here and we'll see who it is see if people can see if you recognize this voice um let's get this queued up recently in some places in the nation there's been a disturbing reoccurrence of bigotry and violence if i may from the platform of this organization known for its tolerance I would like to address a few remarks to those groups who still adhere to senseless racism and religious prejudice. To those individuals who persist in such hateful behavior, if I were speaking to them instead of to you, I would say to them, you are the ones who are out of step with our society. You are the ones who willfully violate the meaning of the dream that is America. And this country, because of what it stands for, will not stand for your conduct. 
Thank you, President Reagan. So I, I am not one to usually agree with President Reagan, but that's what leadership looks like. Finney. Stay safe out there, everybody. Adios.